Well, I figure since it's a snow day, we should rock in with a little Chateauneuf du Pop. Wine is, in this iteration, nearly all Grenache and from a small little family. Um, they're primarily focused in Jigendos, but this is their habeas popum. Oh, my. And it is a fun little blend from a couple different satellites, vineyards that they control. Uh, they are definitely falling into that more and more natural vein. And what I mean by that is less oak. There's a touch of terracotta and flora on this. And Oh, man, right into the camera. That's gorgeous. <laughs> oh, there you go. So I also like Chateauneuf to Pop because they just have such a pretty bottle. It's like oh. all sexy and oh, and it's, like, it's tactile. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which it's is really the, cool. The, oh. So I got myself uh, a glass as well. Um, Perfect. This is it's a bottle of Bowen Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. which Kristen and I recently went to Napa and yeah. really liked that one. Um, we just we yeah. stumbled into this tasting room, and then it's so funny when you go to Napa. Everywhere you go, you get like this long fucking story about everything um, yeah. from the soil, and especially like. All this, what feels like kind of superfluous detail about the family. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But in this case, this one was interesting to me because the guy, the, the head vintner, Joe Wagner, originally, or not originally, but did uh, Miomi. Mm-hmm. And so, like, she was telling us this whole story about how Miomi does not taste like Miomi anymore. No, not, none of those giant California brands do. I mean, Miomi started off and it was. Just like every brand, you know, that you know, 500 bottles were produced and then a 1,000 and then it just started growing and then it became this juggernaut, you know. Um, the other wine that comes to mind is Orange Swift and Orange Swift wines started off and it was literally him trying to sell, literally Orange Swift trying to pawn his wares and pawn like 10, 15, 20 cases out of the back of his busted ass dilapidated <laughs> pickup truck and then, was it? Four years ago, the brand sold for three hundred million dollars to Constellation. Jeez, <laughs> the like the original, the Prisoner, the original blend bears no resemblance to what it is today. And it's you know back in the day it was a cult wine, and now it's just wine for the masses. But I digress. But that uh, it's so weird the way that happens. What what we were told what happened with me with Miomi is. He was bought out, but he kept all the relationships with the farmers, and so he had all the all the rights to the grapes and all of that, and so just put it under a new label. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's always interesting, kind of the chicanery and the the behind the scenes kind of things that go on. Um, I'm more familiar with beer, so I know that a little bit better than I do wine. But it was fun going out there and getting a totally different flavor of it, and it was funny drinking a Pinot out in Napa because that's where cab is king. Yeah, for sure. For uh-huh. sure. And and cab is king there for, you know, for a very specific reason. Climactic factors. Right. You know. So you can grow cab behind a dumpster in Fresno County or you can grow cab on the most expensive lots in the entire world which, you know, pick one of Lafitte Rothschild or Chateau Margaux or one of the first growth Bordeaux houses. And hey, it's still gross, you know. <laughs> Specifically, it likes gravelly soils, but at the end of the day, you can pretty much grow it anywhere. Pinot is a little bit more difficult because it's so thin-skinned and it's very finicky. But right, this is Tony Zizas, and we were introduced thanks to John Connolly, my most recent guest, which is always fun. His introduction is probably the best introduction I've ever gotten for anyone, and I just like to read this. Because it's exceptional. I would like you to meet my partner, the wine merchant of Boulder, Mr. Tony Zizis. He is the Da Vinci of Vino, a culinary genius with James Beard award-winning restaurants under his belt. He is a green thumb, fluent in Spanish, smart as a whip, stylish as hell, charming as the devil, and raised on a Wyoming ranch where he was used for tracking due to his superior sense of smell. And did I mention that he is a psalm? I'm never, ever going to top that. So why try? (laughs) Of that intro... Is there a place you'd like to start? Because that intro just had me, how do I mm-hmm. want to say this, titillated. Well, well uh, first I want to point out uh, when he said wine merchant to Boulder, um, what he meant by that is I, I work for a distribution company called the Harvest Wine Company. And 
Boulder is my primary territory. So I sling wine up in Boulder and I sling wine actually to, um, one of my accounts is the Boulder Wine Merchant, which oh. is a fantastic shop that's owned and run by Master Som, um, Brett Zimmerman. So if you're looking for something very unique or a very curated experience, definitely one of the best boutique wine shops in the state of Colorado to go check out. Um, moving on down into that, uh, I started off in the culinary side of things. Um, I was back of the house, uh, worked in the... Um, on the line cooking here and there. Um, and, and it was a way for me to kind of branch out and explore new places. At, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you are in the United States or across the globe, people eat and drink. So sure. it allowed me to travel. Um, I went to university when I'm at university. I fell in love with Pinot Noir and found out that Pinot Noir grown in the Willamette Valley is far more interesting than a degree in international studies with double minors in Spanish and economics and a topical focus of post-neocolonial wars of Latin America from an economic standpoint. That being said, that, that was I'm, your, that was your original path. Yeah, that was my original path. That's a and mouthful, I, Tony. <laughs> the Pinot Noir is fucking awesome. Like, what's <laughs> going on here? Like they grow Riesling here too in very small amounts. There, wait, there's some Chardonnay. There's, there's, there's Gruner. What was going on here? Um, so I kind of started moving into that side of things and started exploring wine um, at, a, at a very novice level. I remember, you know, I mean, I was a fucking broke-ass college kid, right? So I would go to the, the Safeway that was, we have a joke, was the unsafe way, but it was right next to the college campus. And we, I'd walk there, and they had this little, like, buy six and get, you know, 10 or 15% off. Right. And they were, the, like, giant bulk brands, but, like, cheap, cheap wines, and I was like, yes, but I was a college kid that had six bottles of wine, you know? That's not nothing, man. That's No, I I felt like I was... You had some collateral. I mean, come on. I was drinking wine, and that was my my weekly kind of splurge on myself, and um, during the summertime, there was nothing going on in Salem, Oregon, so I bounced all the way across the United States to... Uh, to Maine and started a catering company. Um, dumbest fucking decision of my life. <laughs> why? Is, once I uh, got rid of that. Um, no, you got to you got to tell me why was that such a terrible decision? Uh, it's cater, catering for rich people um, when you're an, a, a novice is not a great idea. Ah, uh, that yeah, that's a recipe for a lot of getting yelled at. I imagine. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and it, yeah, it was just it. it I had this idea, but I didn't have the the means to execute it yet. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're missing kind of the uh, the skills, right? The chops. For sure. For sure. So now I would, you know, I actually just fired up a, a catering business again. It's called Glory Hole Gourmet, <laughs> and I uh, um, this week, actually last night, dropped off to a couple of different clients their their prepared meals for the week. And it's great because just like the glory hole, you don't know what you're getting. I have their dietary restrictions, but I just get to play. And so, last so night, you, you, you don't take any direction. You're, you're, no. you're just like, Hey, look, you're going to get what you're going to get. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's going to be delicious. And it's going to be paired with wine and cocktails or beer in some cases. And you're going to be completely surprised. So, so put it in your couple, food hole. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of weeks ago, one of my clients actually was like, Hey, I haven't been to my, my favorite Indian restaurant closed down. And I was like, all right, cool. So let's, uh, let's put that on the back burner. So then this week I went to up to Boulder and I met with an Ayurvedic practitioner and learned a couple ins and outs of that style of, of, lifestyle and eating and mindfulness and created this whole um, seven course meal based off of those principles and dropped off the, the meals last night and dropped off a little bottle of wine. It was, it was easy peasy, but you know, now I have the ability to execute something like that. And I'm not just like a 21 year old, like, Hey man, you want some lobster rolls? <laughs> the fuck was I thinking? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, man. Like, when you're that young, you got to like if you're willing to give it a shot, then give it a shot and who gives a shit, right? I, I mean, totally. it, it may have been unpleasant, but hell, at least you tried, man. You're lapping everyone else who's like, I have this great idea. It's like, then go fucking do it. 
Yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing. It got me to the East Coast. It got me to Maine. And then segueing into, you know, what, what John mentioned earlier, I started working at different restaurants. Um, I worked at this one fabulous restaurant um, uh, under Ken Paquin as the, uh, the chef um, at uh, Atlantica Seafood Bistro. And then I worked over at um, the uh, Long Grain, which I helped open with, with Chef Boz. And eventually they got a James Beard nomination. So I'm like, I mean, obviously that was, you know, three or four summers down the road, but like, it was fun to totally open up a restaurant and well, have his recipes for like pad thai and, you know, totally. know that the recipe I use has a James Beard award. Well, dude, and here's the thing about that too. I worked for a PR firm called MGA Communications and they had mm-hmm. this long client. It was the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. They dealt with it when it was a super fun site, had to clean it up. Uh, I came in when it was already a, uh, a refuge, but we won mm-hmm. one of the top uh, five PR campaigns of the decade by the Holmes Report. And, like, so here's the thing. You know, it's like I'm just writing, you know, like these goofy little, like, slice-of-life articles or, you know, I'm making talking points or I'm pitching media or whatever. Dude, like, if you're on the team, like, you all share in that success. E- even if it was a yeah. few summers down the road, like, that's still meaningful. And I think people tend to downplay mm-hmm their own contributions to things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure. I, I think that's awesome. Like having that under your belt. Yeah, man, you put that on your CV. Oh, for sure. And I mean, at the end of the day, it was how I landed John. I mean, he came over one night and, uh, we, uh, I'll, I'll spare you the gruesome details. We spent <laughs> the night. The next day I told him, I was like, Hey man, like that was fun. If you want to, hang out tomorrow and making pad thai and it will be the best fucking pad thai you've ever eaten. And he was like, okay. Well, and, he, and you're allergic to peanuts. Yeah. And I was allergic to peanuts and he was just like, well, I'm going to give it a go. And we've been together ever since. And that was uh, four and a half years ago. Well, okay. So I'm sure my wife will be thrilled when she listens to this episode, but we started as a one night stand and eventually it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, no, we, we, we definitely need to do that again. And also, we need to be spending a lot more time together. She didn't promise me pad tie or anything. But, yeah. uh, that, I mean, that would have been hard to turn down. Oh, for sure. So, well played, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's having the best pad tie recipe in your hip pocket. I mean, Christ, man, what a closer. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's also led to a lot of, uh, Every time I'm at a Thai restaurant, I order the pad thai, and I'm just like, you're unworthy. <laughs> so, why, why do you keep doing that to yourself? I mean, it's just because I want to, you know, see what other people are doing. Yeah, sure. You got, you got to give it a shot. I was in England in like 2000 and, good God, what year was that? 11. And their big like hipster food at the time was Mexican food. Like I was so tempted to try it. Yeah, I'm like, let's see how these limeys are gonna fuck this up. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm like, why do that to myself? I'm if, if I was in England for like a long time, then mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely would have, and I would have felt superior <laughs> over it. But uh, I, I opted not to. But I, I totally understand the temptation. You just you, you yeah. can't resist sometimes. I mean, the two things that that you know the uh, the Londoners do well are curry and and fish and chips and beyond that i mean obviously there's a whole subset of english roasts and like that whole like sunday vibe and you know pies and meat pies and this and that and stews and things like that for sure but uh i did have some of the best thai food of my life in london so that's yeah that's pretty good yeah i believe that at what point did you decide hey i'm gonna start pursuing my psalm certification when did you start down that path uh, it was, uh, it was eight, nine years ago when I first, nine years ago when I first moved to Denver. So moved to Denver, left kind of like the cooking side of things behind. Um, I took a 10,000 mile road trip around the United States, Canada, Mexico. I left Camden and just kind of set off and I just spent all of my money on, on food and wine. And when I ran out of gas and money in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was like, well, shit, what do I have to, I need to do something. I can't just live on my friend Rachel's couch forever. So I, again, stole pad thai out of the backseat of my car in a Safeway parking lot <laughs> to make enough gas money to drive to Denver and crash wait, what? with my... Wait, wait, wait a minute. You, 
Okay, so where are you making this pad thai? And you're selling that out of the back of your car? What? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, so I had a, an old school Jeep Grand Cherokee. It was like a 96 or something. I think my mom had that same car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I uh, had that and just popped open the trunk. I had a mobile Thai kitchen that I traveled with. I had woks and um, um, a, a fantastic burner set. And that's how I traveled because anywhere I went – people that I was staying with instead of, you know, staying at a hotel or wherever, I'd just be like, Hey, can I crash on your couch for a few days or a week, explore the city or wherever you're living. And whenever you come home from either class or your job or what have you, I'll cook you food and I'll have food ready for you. And people were like, hell yes. So I posted up at the Safeway parking lot, started selling my, my wares and I could say within the first two or three days, made enough gas money to zip up here. Crashed uh, with my aunt, um, got a restaurant job immediately, front of the house this time, being a, a server. And then... Hold on, I gotta, start- I, I gotta pause you real quick again. How much of a walk uphill was that, being in the Safeway parking lot and selling pad thai? Because that's not, you know, like I've bought burritos from a guy, uh, you know, who has them like in a cooler. Like okay, this is yeah. like, this is like a breakfast burrito. I get that. Pad, yeah, yeah. Pad Thai, higher level of difficulty, and like not not something that I I'm necessarily going to feel comfortable buying it out of some dude's car in a parking lot. So like, yeah. H- how was it like getting people to a be comfortable with it, and then b be like, did they tell others because I it was really fucking good. Like yeah, I I just I need a little more color there. Yeah, um, I mean, on the, the on the A side of that question, um, it was definitely an uphill battle because people were like, "What? Wait, what? Yeah, what what is happening? And were you doing uh, this on the DL? I'm assuming it's with no license or anything, like? Oh, absolutely just, no license, I have right. nothing, nothing whatsoever. But you know, like pad thai is a very pungent smelling dish, especially when you get cooking. So I would literally post up during, you know, like lunchtime and you know, cook up some pad thai and people would smell it before they saw me and then try to figure out what that was. And then they'd naturally be curious and then they walk over and I literally had a sign that I made like with a Sharpie and, you know, <laughs> like some cardboard. I bought in the Safeway and they're like, you know, like office supply section and I was selling 10 bucks a pop and people were like, sure, we'll give it a go. Wow. Uh, well, I will say this. It, it almost sounds like you're doing like a Stefan bit from uh, SNL. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like the best pad tie is out of this guy's Jeep Grand Cherokee in the parking lot of a Safeway. It, that sounds like some made up hipster bullshit. But like, I, I mean, it's all true. <laughs> I'm the original hipster. I was the first one. <laughs> God, that's fantastic. Okay. So you, you eventually make enough money slinging underground pad thai uh, mm-hmm. to make it up here. You work in the front of the house. Keep going. I interrupted you. So I work in the front of the house and, you know, I started off as, as server and you, you just kind of naturally progress up. Um, and I, you know, went to AGM and general manager and this and that kind of bounced around for the first couple of years. But in that path, I, I'm always... I, I love academia and I love learning more and it kind of just fell into my lap. So I started off and I was like, Oh, I'm going to take the, the first certification for the court of masters. So do that. Um, and then I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is fun, but I'm not really into that group, so to speak. And it's more for being specifically in restaurants and it wasn't as academic as I wanted. Uh, so I took a jump on to the, to a different path, which is called WSET. And it's the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. It's based in London. At the end of the day, they're basically exactly the same thing. There's a focus on service in the Court of Masters where there's not in the Master of or the, the WSET. And in the WSET, you also have um, a, a paper uh, component to it. So, oh, so there's writing and like, okay. And given what you told me about, uh, your previous path, that makes sense. That, that would be attractive to you. I get it. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. kind of the same way. I didn't, I was good at school. Like I fancy myself a smart guy, but there, yeah. are, there are people who aren't terribly smart who are very good at school. 
I like to mm-hmm. think I was good at both. And so going on and getting a master's degree just made sense to me just because I'm like, yeah. oh, I get to keep studying this stuff and writing about it. That's like, like, that's like breathing to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, so that kind of just kept going. So I jumped into, um, level three took that exam and, and, and passed. And I was four years ago, three years ago. And then I made the decision to start what's called the diploma, which essentially is level four. And in the diploma, uh, it's broken into six exams. So you have level or the first exam, which is going to be like enology. And it's, you know, like, uh, what about the vine, about, uh, viticulture in general. Second one is going to be a, a paper. So you have to you complete your paper. Third, there's, um, uh, all still wines of the world, which is a pretty big fucking topic. <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so far that was the only one that I, I failed a portion of it. Um, the theory, the first time I took it, um, and that, that has a theory and a blind. And then there's, um, sparkling, which is a theory and a blind fortifieds, which has a theory and the blind. And then when I took it three years ago, they've changed it now, but there used to be a spirits component. Oh, wow. All right. So that was your, your six. Now they've kind of changed it a little bit. Um, but I just, I passed everything on the first go, which I was very excited for and, you know, had a bunch of hubris. And then when I got to the hard one, the, uh, all still whites of the world, I passed the blind and then failed the, uh, oh, what's it called? The theory portion. The first time I just retook that. I feel really, really, really good about it. Um, I will know middle of January if oh, I wow. passed or not. And then if that's passed, everything is a nice little bow. I get to set that off to the side. And then in 2021, uh, start drinking from a fire hose, so to speak, and launch myself into the master of wine, which will be another three to five years of intense studies, tastings, tests, exams, the whole rigmarole. But at this point, I'm like, I basically just got a quote unquote master's degree and I'm going for the PhD, you know? Yeah, that, uh, man, that sounds legit. Is there, so when you say the master, you're talking about the one that has, uh, theory, blind tasting, and service? No, so, so there's, there's, oh, okay, there's you're right. Not the master court. Which is the court. And then there's master of wine, which is a different path. Right. Both are basically the same, but the main difference is one is service oriented, court, and then master of wine is more, um, academic. And I will, after I pass all the exams with blind tasting and theory, yada, yada, and all the sure. small papers, I will have to write a thesis and I will have to defend that. Oh, wow. Writing and defending a thesis was probably one of my favorite and most exhausting things I ever did in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because the writing and the revising and making sure your arguments are square and that you know, what you're doing is defensible and, you know, I'm taking Mm -hmm. uh, a theory called constitutive rhetoric and applying it to punk rock. Like it, you, anytime you're you're writing a theory, it's kind of like you, you need to do something that no one else has really done. And that's my friend is going to be the hardest thing to figure out in the wine world because there's so many things that I want to do, but physically have not like not physically and mentally don't have the ability to do them. Like, Everybody talks about minerality, right? And well, when you smell a wine, mm, this is, mm, this has high minerality. What the fuck does that mean? And you're not specifically smelling a rock in your wine. <laughs> what I believe you're smelling is an interaction between mycelial networks and how they allow different uptakes of nutrients in a in the vine to therefore produce a specific type of grape, which therefore produces a specific type of wine. Guess who doesn't like chemistry? This guy. Guess who's never going to be able to like actually get into this hard science of that? This guy. So next next up, well, I've always wondered what 4-methylglycol does to soils and how that fucks That's the main component roundup and how that fucks up our agricultural system and how it could fuck up a vine system. Yeah, still not into the hard science on all, that. All so, chemistry um, again. So I'm like, okay, well, what do I, what, what realm is it that I'm going to start exploring? And 
I've kind of narrowed it down that it's more going to be a cultural influence of wine and how that affects people or something of uh, in that realm, but definitely more of a humanities type of person and, and studier and writer. So we'll see. We'll see where that plays out. So, I mean, you mentioned culture and wine. How does wine influence culture? How does culture influence wine? Things like that. When I was in Napa, and granted, the movie didn't take place there, but I, I brought up with a number of people talking about Sideways, of course, because that is most people's shorthand cultural reference for wine. And for many, it's, it's an entry point. And one thing I read was sales of Merlot went down substantially, or at least noticeably, Mm-hmm. After that movie premiered, um, I'm curious. I would be remiss if I didn't. I know what's funny about that movie. What's that? The whole joke, the whole thing that everybody in the in the non wine geeky world missed. He's not drinking fucking Merlot, right? Mm-hmm. But but at the very end, when he's sitting by himself at that burger joint, yeah, the fast food place, fast food burger, drinking 1967 uh, Cheval Blanc. That is Merlot based. It's Merlot and Cabernet <laughs> Franc out of Bordeaux. So that's the whole fucking joke. Well, and he shits on Cab Franc too earlier in the movie. Like, which yeah, is, which is, at the, to, to his credit, he is traveling through Pinot country. Right. Okay. Fair enough. I'm curious about. But Bordeaux, you're not going to be like, I'm not fucking drinking <laughs> Pinot because there's no Pinot available. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, that makes perfect sense to me. I'm curious about how much that movie plays in the interactions that you have with non-wine people. How frequently does it come up? How much does it influence the decisions that they make versus the ones that you recommend? Mm. How does that movie interplay in your life? Well, a movie and any type of media really affects you know human beings. And that movie definitely drove kind of uh, stylistic preferences and a move towards Pinot, which is fantastic. Because I love Pinot Noir. Um, what's interesting is is what you can directly see consumer choice and how it is tied to the planting of vines. So at one point, um, and Cab is still king in California, but at one point um, Merlot was the second highest planted crop or the second highest planted um, uh, grape varietal. And that was in the 60s, 70s, moving into the 80s. As soon as that movie hit, and as soon as kind of, it was already on a downswing anyway. But as soon as that movie hit, Merlot who? Like everybody re, like top grafted different vines and and jumped on the cab train or jumped on some other train because it it stalled out. And it's still kind of going at a, a putter, putter, putter. But, you know, it's just fashion. I mean, in the 60s, ask, any person that, you know, ever was on a, an airplane or any person that ever, you know, drank red wine in the 60s that was domestic, 60s and 70s was Merlot. I'll take your Merlot. It was always Merlot. Cab, Cab who? Cab didn't exist in the United States. I mean, it did, but Cab was always, you know, kind of took a second seat. It was, then, yeah, it was like a second-class citizen. Mer- yeah. Merlot was yeah. like a status symbol at the time is what you're saying, right? Yeah, very much so. And then it kind of switched and, and everything, everything kind of wanes and falls and changes. And, you know, um, late, late 90, no, late eighties, early nineties, there were like a group of individuals called the Rome Rangers and they started planting, you know, Rome varieties, Grenache, Syrah, Mouvet, Cunois, um, uh, Roussan, Marsan, and those, those wines started growing. And now, you know, Syrah has got tons of acreages in, in California. So every, it, it all kinds of keeps moving and flowing and, you know, like to bring it more presently, the, the blends in the last five to 10 years have really right. taken off. California red blend. What's in it? Who fucking cares? But it says resident <laughs> red blend, you know? Right. It's, or it's like something like uh, conundrum. Right. <sighs> Which, uh, yeah, I know you're making the face and understandably so, but very, very popular. But do you know what it is? It's fucking consistent. It doesn't matter what grapes it's made from or how it's made, but it tastes the same. And if you have a recipe and you have medium acidity, medium body, medium tannin, you know, juicy fruit on the nose, a touch of sweetness on the mid palate, and it finishes smooth. Right. It, Boom, you got a fucking million dollars. 
wine on your hands. So it's interesting to me as, you know, more as traditionally a beer guy, one thing that frustrated me in the early stages of the craft beer movement was you'd go into these places, you'd have something that you really liked and you couldn't go back and get it again. It, because mm-hmm. they were always changing it. It was always the small batch stuff and it's like, "Oh man, remember that like Pilsner or that double IPA or whatever it was that you had. They don't have it again. And what's interesting mm-hmm. to me, so the point that you're making underlines something I've been thinking about a lot. You know what industry I think is going through that right now is weed. Because in dispensaries, yeah. there's never the same shit twice. Yeah. Yeah. And you go, you know, like. And for me, all too strong anyway. <laughs> like, I miss the fucking weed I bought from my dealer in college. That you could smoke a joint and pass around with friends and be fine. This, you light up a fucking joint that you buy down at the dispensary. Oh, you're on your ass. <laughs> uh, you know, like, what is in this shit? You know? God, I miss like, Mexican dick weed. Well, like, they've gotten too good at it. And, yeah. And yeah. so, like, yeah, no, you're right. A lot of people, when they had an appetite for weed when they were younger, it was like... To get sh- back to the point, yeah. the same thing happened in the craft beer world. And it's called... The West Coast IPA. Uh, right. Power, 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 power. Same as in California. California Napa blends or California red wine. Big tannins, big oak, big power, big structure, and it just push everything. It's the same in the weed industry. As powerful, as much THC as you can get. We're going to finally come back, as we always do, in beer or wine or any type of yeah. fat. You go all the way to the right, just like in our politics, and you come <laughs> all the way to the left. And you end up somewhere in the middle. Agreed. It's so funny. Yeah, too. Like, I remember hearing craft beer people talk about fizzy yellow beer in a pejorative way. And it's like, oh, we don't make fizzy yellow beer. It's like, well, that's what fucking people like. Like, there, there are times where during the day, like, I want to drink, like, eight or nine lagers. And so now you see... Uh, a lot of places with their own loggers, their own pilsners. Like one of the most mm-hmm. sort of sought after places is Beerstadt Lager House. Um, yeah. And they're making a slow pour pills. It's a German pilsner style. And and mm-hmm. you go, okay, so yeah, you're right. It can correct. I think to your point, weed will get there. Um, mm-hmm. But it's going through its big West Coast IPA, big California, like uh, cab kind of movement. But it mm-hmm. hasn't corrected back yet. So that's yep. hearing you say that really threw that into sharp relief for me. Uh, and, and also kind of jumping on the fad that is this, uh, the, the beer craze, especially in Colorado. Um, up in Boulder, there was this restaurant that I sold uh, an unfiltered Arnais. It came out cloudy. It was funky. It was in that kind of natural wine movement and uh, couldn't fucking give it away. Couldn't give it away. They changed the verbiage on their menu, and it read, instead of unfiltered Arnais, to hazy Arnais. <laughs> that shit, boom! It was a new fucking thing in Boulder. Everybody had to have it. It was it was just the coolest new thing. And I was just like, yeah, you beer people. Uh, yeah, oh, God. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I love beer. I love wine. I love spirits. Anyone who has dedicated a little bit too much to it can get so far up their own ass that they become insufferable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I want to touch on something else because, like, we, we mentioned Sideways. Another entry point, I think, for people is I saw the movie Psalm, the documentary. <laughs> yep. I watched the show on the now-dead Esquire network uh, of Uncorked. I don't know if you caught that one. Yep, yep. Uh, but this is people all pursuing their uh their master psalm certification uh through mm-hmm. the master court of sommeliers which is you know yeah. different than what you're doing but it was interesting watching it because and i promise this is leading to a question in my case i have always been a really good test taker i have an unbelievable memory i have uh an appetite for trivia so the theory portion i feel like you know it's this varietal in this region of the world this kind of soil is it oaked is it stainless steel, that kind of thing. I, I feel like I have uh, a natural kind of uh, gravitational pull toward that kind of information. Mm-hmm. The thing that gets me is the tasting portion. Now, that's one that you nailed. And I'm mm-hmm. curious your thoughts on how, and I, I come at this with some skepticism just because I know the vagaries of my own sinuses. Mm-hmm. My concern is if I were ever to pursue this, I'm not, but 
that it feels arbitrary in terms of test taking for taste. And I, I want to get your kind of take on the tasting portion of the of the SOM exam. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I like you know you mentioned arbitrary and and some degree it is and to some degree it's a fun parlor trick. But at the end of the day, it's it's less of either of those and more about using that trivia side of your brain and using your mind as a as a Rolodex. Okay. So instead of saying, you know, this wine is red, okay? Oh, yeah, instead like Michael of, Scott on The Office. I, I'm a, kind of a wine guy. This is uh, a red. Mm-hmm. So, but here's the thing. If you can look at it and you can tell it's red wine, guess what it's not? You've eliminated half it's, the possibilities. It's eliminated half of things. Now, this could be um, a you know fortified red. This could be a sparkling red. Well, it doesn't have any bubbles. And the, uh, the viscosity of the wine, the, um, the way it kind of the legs run down, pretty quick, pretty, pretty thin. So I'm going to generally guess that this is a lower um, alcohol wine. This is not a fortified wine. It's not somewhere that's 16, 17, 18% with residual sugar because of of just the site. So then that gets rid of all the ports and gets rid of all that kind of side okay. things. So now I'm just narrowing it down. Okay, so, so I mean, this is like an exercise in deductive reasoning is what you're saying. 100%. That's all it is. It's okay. all deductive reasoning. And so, you know, then now we approach the wine and we start looking and it's, okay, well, I can still see through it. Um, wine is going to have a, a pretty thin water meniscus going guess that given this color and this kind of softness, this is um, definitely on the, the garnet, um, dark ruby. Yeah, I'd say dark ruby in the center fading out to garnet. So, you know, then I can kind of start deducing that it's probably um, a thicker skin grape. It's probably something with a, a little uh, richer, richer style of wine. So I'm probably going to drop Pinot out of the category by just side alone at this point because, okay. and, and, and Ruque and Gring, uh, Gringolino and, um, a whole group of light skinned varieties. So then we start jumping in and we start going into kind of the smell. And smell for me really kind of opens up the gamut. So, um, on this, I'm getting, some tree fruits, uh, or some tree fruits, some, some berries. So I'm getting, um, blackberry, a little bit of cassis, which might lead me directly to cab. Hmm. Oak treatment on this is, is minimal. I, I mean, I'm not getting any new oak signatures whatsoever. So because I'm getting no new oak signatures, earth is going to be kind of like, um, or just like a rustic, almost gravelly note. So I, I'm starting to get rid of the possibility that this is New World. You know, if it, if it was jumping out of the glass and it was like berry fruit, then I'd go New World, right? But it's not, and it doesn't have any like New Oak signatures to it, which is another New World kind of thing. Um, bigger, more powerful oakier wines. Um, One thing I find charming I, about wine, and it's unique to wine, is referring to things as New World versus Old World. You don't hear that like anywhere else, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, <laughs> new world th- that takes you back to Columbus. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the new world is anything that's, you know, fuck Columbus. First off, we need to make that point known, but I, I, um, agreed. Fuck that guy. He can get but, fucked with a shovel, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's but kind of a reference point. Old world. old world is Europe at the end of the yeah. day. And new world is anywhere else in the world, essentially. So I, Stylistically, because of you know a, a number of factors, the, the New World wines just pre- present themselves in that way. Um, they're usually higher in alcohol, lower in acidity, which is something we can get to right now. Firm but yielding tannins, medium body, medium plus, uh, medium, medium, medium plus acidity. Flavor intensity, I'd say, on this is pretty intense. I mean, I've got a lot of just like dried cranberry, dried berry, dried um, cherry, um, which I kind of start almost maybe want to go into 
the the Spanish world because of all those dried elements. Um, you know, I'm kind of in into the Grenache realm because um, on the nose, I, Grenache for me for whatever fucking reason has this this smell and this chalkiness on the palate um, that is reminiscent of a Flintstones purple uh, chewable tablet. <laughs> The that, vitamin tablet that my parents fed me as kids, that, that purple one is Grenache. Dude, that, that is so evocative because I know exactly what flavor that is. Mm-hmm. And like, no, that, like, that's exactly correct. It reminds me of a moment in Psalm. I think it's Psalm where he said, um, I, I think he's referring to, oh God, Sauv Blanc as smelling mm-hmm. like a freshly opened can of tennis balls. Yeah, 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 for sure. And you go, oh man, I know that smell. Like, and like, that's very mm-hmm. evocative. And so, like, you wouldn't associate that with something enjoyable that you're going to eat or drink. Mm-hmm. But it works perfectly when you're talking about Sauv Blanc, which is one of my favorite styles. Just, I don't know. Yeah, I kind of like the well, funk it, and the acidity. So, and and you know, if we're say say this is a Sauv Blanc in front of us, and we're trying to decide if it's from Sancerre, if it's from uh, say New Zealand. Or from say, I don't know, um, Napa, right? Sure. Or, or California. So New Zealand, grapefruit, grapefruit, fucking grapefruit, and freshly mown lawn. Wow. Um, in in Sancerre, cat piss and a little <laughs> bit of like a green chervil or like a green herb element. Man, cat and piss, then, another weed descriptor. Like totally, you, yeah. If you read strain reviews, it'll be like, no, strong cat piss kind of scent, and you go, what the fuck? Like, what are we even doing here? Yeah. But like, there's there's an element to that that is weirdly a evocative and b satisfying. So yeah. you're, you're right, I get it. Uh, and then California, you know, like let's you know let's throw a little bit of oak on it, and it's in a hot climate, so it smells like jalapenos and butterscotch. Huh. God damn. Okay, so that's where the deduction comes in because yeah. when you start thinking of it, you're like, "This is Sauv Blanc, yay!" But where is this from? Sure, okay. How much jalapeno on it? Does it have a lot of it or a little bit of it? Um, if it's only a little bit and there's no oak, we're not in California. We're not in Napa. We're in Chile. Okay, okay. That that makes good sense to me and you've explained it to me better than uh anyone i've ever read or Mm. seen uh talk about how the tasting works and how you can deduce that because from the outside looking in and if you're uninitiated it can look like like you said a parlor trick and i think i think that's a really interesting way of putting it but no that that makes sense and i mean it reminds me of i used to write about music like on the internet and people would ask me, like, hey, how do I write about music? I'm like, okay, A, you got to listen to a fucking lot of music. And yep. B, you need to read a lot of music writing, too. Yeah. If you want to be a writer, like, you got to read Grail Marcus. You know, you've got to read Lester Bangs. You've got to read all mm-hmm. these, like, rock and music critics. And not only rock and music critics, you need to start reading about jazz. You need to start reading about classical. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure there are wines that you're not super into, but almost to, to stay up and keep credibility professionally, you've got to consume a bunch of wines that you're not particularly hot on. Totally. And, and that's why I have dinner parties. So I pop okay. open a bottle, right? I pop open a, well, I used to. God, I miss those days. But I pop open, say, a bottle of, I don't know, Sauvignon Blanc, which is not my favorite varietal. Yeah. And I would have one glass and everybody around the table would have a glass and then it's gone. And everyone is just laughing and giggling and oh, swigging and chuckling. I'm fucking researching. Are you, you listening know? to the way they talk about it too? Sometimes, sometimes. Um, depending on how late in the night it is, it's either unintelligible <laughs> or not. But but I'm all, I'm always listening. And I'm also just like okay, categorizing. This is how this tastes. This is how it tasted today. This is kind of my experience with it. Okay, boom. Moving on to the next one. Uh, skin contact wine from Sicily. Ugh. Can be great, can be weird, can be fucked up. Today it is great. It is what it is, yes. right? It is what it is, you know, and we get to like move through five or six bottles where if it's just John and I at home, you know, we might have a bottle. No, I was kidding. We'll have two bottles. Yeah, of course. And, 
you know, and then maybe crack open a third. And by that point, I'm not studying anymore. I'm not, you know, we're just drinking, but, but still it's like every time I open a bottle, I smell, I taste, and I'm just like, okay, how is this different from the last time I've had it? Right. How is this either style changing? How is the, this vintage changing? Uh, was it hot? Was it cold? What happened? Like how, what are all the factors that are giving me what's in this glass right now? And the next time I taste it, you know, like the last time I had this wine specifically, um, I had the 14 and 16 vintage, didn't have the 15, unfortunately. The, the 14 was really soft and elegant and just like almost like ethereal and like perfumed and had this lifted tone. Um, 15 was, uh, or 16, pardon me, it was a little bit broader shoulder, a little bit richer than what's in the glass right now. This is kind of like that in between. 17 wasn't like a great vintage. It wasn't a bad vintage. It wasn't a super warm vintage. It was kind of that in between. And it kind of shows that way in the glass, you know, is this going, is this knocking my socks off? No, it's really good. It's sound, it's quality, but it's not. Sure. Well, you know. How how much of this shit do you write down, or do you just kind of keep a mental tab on it? Uh, it's about 50-50. I would say I do write a lot of things down, um, and I have a lot of notes that I, I refer to back. Um, but a lot of it is just, and, and this kind of goes towards my, my focus of, of just like quick mental recall, is it's more just every time just think about think about think about it. Embed it. You know, a, a few years ago when I started getting into beer, I would like, I would do the same thing. And now it, it was, it got to a point where I would open like, I haven't drank soda in three years now, but I would open a can of Sprite and just like smell it. Like it just sort of became this, this way that I consumed beverages. Uh, yeah. So no, I totally get that. Okay. Another one last question about the tasting portion. How much game theory goes into it? You know, like, where you have three reds, three whites in front of you. Is that the way it works? Like, yeah. So oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> because yeah. I, I just got to ask this. Like, do they ever just lob some what feels like unfair grenade in there where they give you like yellowtail Chardonnay or like, you know, some like crappy varietal out of Palisade, Colorado? You know, like, or, or how much of it is kind of, um, stuff that that is more fair game in terms of what Assam is expected to do. Mm-hmm. So in the in the MW, the Master of Wine, there's 12 wines in front of you. Oh, there's 12? They give you 12. So they give you a paper. They give you a paper. And the, on the paper, when you open it, it says wine one, two, and three are from the same region. Oh. Wine one... So, um, reiterating a test I took for the, um, uh, diploma mm-hmm. that I passed, um, wine one, two, and three are from the same region. Okay. So pick the region, pick the grapes, understand the wines, discuss. So the first wine is white. Okay. Second wine is red and the third one is red. So I smell the first wine. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this is. It's smells like white wine. Great. <laughs> I, but it's very perfumed and it has this like, High tone. Okay. Next one. I smell it. I'm like, that, my friend, is Barolo. That's Barolo. That's fucking Barolo. That has to be Barolo. Barolo, Barolo, Barolo. The next one, I smell it. It's juicy. It's fruit forward. Um, and I'm like, Dolcetto Barbera. Dolcetto Barbera. I taste it. Tannins are really soft, supple, but just juicy, ripe. So I'm like, okay, this is number two is Barolo. Number three is Barbera. What white wine is classic from from the region that's uh-huh. perfumed? Is it Cortese? Mm, not as perfumed. Is it Arnais? Uh-huh. Arnais. So you can go back and kind of go go through that. Yeah. Now, with that too, you, they can throw you a curveball. And getting back to the yellowtail Chardonnay, they can pour a yellowtail Chardonnay. They can pour a Premier Cru Burgundy. They can pour a um, mid-priced or expensive California wine and a Grand Cru Chablis. All of them are Chardonnay. Pick where they're from, how they're made, and what led to the the price differences. So Grand Cru Chablis, you know, we're talking, that's from a Grand Cru vineyard. Um, neutral oak, maybe some new oak, but that intense style. 
the the California big oat malolactic fermentation, buttery, rich, got it. Um, Primet Cru Burgundy, say, you know, maybe Primet Cru Marceau, smells like the sexiest oatmeal you've ever had and lemon curd and just hazelnut and just, just pure sex. And then the yellowtail could be one of two ways, could have a shit ton of oak chips in it and it's just gritty and just sticky on the palate or it could, or it just could be just stainless steel and just be basically neutral. So then you go through and you say, because this one is basically neutral, this is the cheap one, right? And this one is so intense, so aromatic, so like this. Is, and then you can kind of rank them in price and quality and give them a deductive conversation about that. And that's your quality assessment. Wow. That is everything I wanted to know about that. That is fantastic. Okay. <clears throat> As you pursue the highest level here. Um, mm -hmm. you've got a job slinging wine, you've got, yep. you've got a job, uh, catering yep. dinner parties. How do you balance your time and how much is it going to take for you? You said three to five years. Um, yeah. how do you balance your day? What does that look like as you pursue this highest level of certification? Um, so I, I work four, four and a half days a week, if you will. Um, uh, Monday is my day where I study. Okay. That's it. I, Monday I study, John's not home. I have the house to myself and I spend, depending on the day, six to 10 hours, just reading, writing, just full study. Like um, making flashcards, that kind of thing or. Yeah. I'm not really a flashcard maker because for me, I don't care if I know that there are, you know, 41 premier crews or five first grills or, or, and I don't really care to name them. Sure. What I care about is why are they all a first growth Bordeaux? How? Like, what, let's go back to the history of, of them, but it, it's less important of being like flashcard memorization and more important about telling a story. Okay. And that's how my brain works. Understood. So, um, that's kind of my, 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 idea of study. Um, yeah, I've just never been a flashcard person, but I digress. Um, and then during the week when I am studying regions, so say the first week of the month, um, I read all about, um, Chile, right. And I started in Atocha, make my way all the way down to Bio Bio and learn everything in between, figure out why, Santiago is so important as like a central hub of the city. Um, really focus on what changed everything in South American wine industry, which was the railroad in the 1800s. How did that play effect? How is current global trends playing effect? Study, study, study. And then the next week, week two of Chile, I take out uh, different wines. So say Cinso from the Bio Bio, or I take out something where I go buy if I don't have it in the portfolio. I go by and I taste and next week's all about tasting and, and showing and demonstrating. And if you teach, you have a little bit, uh, you have a little bit better kind of like recollection of it. Right. So study one week, teach the next, taste the next smell for me really drives something home. So like sometimes when I'll smell a wine, I'll be like, I have no idea why the fuck I'm thinking about a railway going from, uh, Buenos Aires to Mendoza. Oh, it's because this is, this is Malbec, you know, right. or like, yeah, uh, smelling like, um, a gamay and being like, Oh, wow, this is fucking delicious. Why did Philip the Bold kick gamay out of Burgundy in the 12th century? Why did he do that? Because he thought Pinot Noir was a superior grape. Oh, silly me. You know, like, and, and that's kind of how my mind clicks and works and pulls things and this and that. And, and that's kind of my, my study game. Um, also Sundays, I, I like to get together with, with people when I, we can still do that. Um, and, and do like wine tasting. Um, I was a part of a, a ta rigorous tasting group in Boulder every Wednesday, every other Wednesday morning, we'd get together six wines, you know, rock it through, just constantly keeping up with all the nuances during the week. And like I said, this is at the end of the day, we're studying. Yeah. I, and what a lovely thing to study. 
Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Tony, this, uh, this has been some of the most fun I've had on this show in quite some time. Um, because A, you scratched a curiosity itch that I have. B, we're talking about wine, something that brings us joy. And C, you're just a funny, great dude and a wonderful conversationalist. So this has been just an absolute joy. Like I've, I've learned what I wanted to learn and man, this has been great. Just, uh, virtually enjoying a glass of wine with you. So, uh, I appreciate yes. it. Um, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. So anything you want to plug, where can people find you? Uh, anything you want to plug right now, plug it. Yeah. Um, so first thing I want to kind of like plug in the wine industry is when you buy a bottle of wine, turn it around or before you buy it, start familiarizing yourself with like import companies and import companies with import companies come quality, right? So there are certain places that spin the bottle. Kermit Lynch is a fabulous one. This is a uh, Martins. D Maison is amazing. Anything that says Becky Wasserman, fucking buy it. Start learning, learning which um, import company you like because you'll find commonality between the two. Um, as we go into the holiday season, obviously we're not really getting a lot of you know buying a bunch of wine and having a bunch of people over. So in, instead, go to a small wine shop. And instead of buying two bottles, buy one really nice bottle for you and your, your significant other or fuck it for yourself. Who cares? <laughs> but, you know, we're not gathering in large amounts. So spend a little bit more on yourself at this time of the year. I always love to, to, to plug wines that are off the beaten path. You know, like champagne is not just for New Year's. Drink it on a fucking Tuesday with some fried chicken. Go go out and buy some port, buy a sherry, buy a dessert wine. And one night, drink a dessert wine and watch the Great British Baking Show, you know? Like, treat yourself. Do something fun. And wine is not just a red in a glass or a white in the glass. It is a whole world and a whole understanding of things. That's beautiful. You, you don't have anything like uh, Craven self-promotion to plug? Not really. I mean, I'm I'm just kind of going about doing me, and if I have the you know pleasure of coming across people, I used to do in-home tastings. I've kind of stopped that right now. Um, I do virtual tastings if if you know somebody wants to do something. I'm I'm down to set it up. Like next week uh, for a 40th birthday for a gentleman, his wife called. She uh, her and five of their friends. So six total. I pulled a couple of wines. We're going to, the theme is, um, biodynamics. So we're going to talk about biodynamic viticulture. Um, I get to drive around the Denver Metro area and drop off two wines at each different house. And then, you know, we log on just like this on a zoom call and we talk about wine for an hour and a half. So yeah, I get, I get to do those fun things and I really enjoy it. That's awesome, man. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege and Tony, in everything you do as you pursue this highest level of certification, I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And one very, very last thing that John included in his bio uh, of me that I, I should talk on uh, and point out. I think that everyone, anyone can do this. And this is what I, where I've gotten um, definitely has a sense, an older, an olfactory kind of, point um but it's all about study and it's all about getting to those next achievements i did when i was a young child find out that uh sense of smell was something that was very important to me and i found that out when my dad and i would go hunting together as we were hunting in wyoming i could smell the sagey piss urine um stank if you will of of antelope and deer and we would just continue to be in the 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 um Blind. Uh, downwind downwind from them and that's how we would track is based off of my sense of smell that's yeah. a, that's amazing man well i'll tell you what um i wish you happy holidays and uh at some point i hope we can get together in person and do this i love it cheers my friend and that'll do it for episode 274 of the John of All Trades podcast with Tony Zesis. What a great show, right? What an amazing show. Great dude. Cannot wait till I can get together with him in real life. But hopefully the pandemic's coming to an end. You never know. Stay safe out there. Wear your mask. Wash your damn hands. Take care of yourselves. Take care of others. Let's do some plugs. 
John of All Trades Podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. I do all kinds of traditional PR. I do communications training. And I'll also produce you a podcast. If you have an idea, hit me up. Deft can help you get that thing on wheels. D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is 4 Degrees. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. Anything you're doing online, 4 Degrees can help you do it better. Whether you're doing social media marketing, online advertising, building a simple website, or just trying to reach people where they are. 4 Degrees, genius level at what they do. Number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. Follow John of All Trades on social media. That's J-O-A-T pod on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up exclusively on Facebook on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. That's on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, any of a billion other podcatchers. Hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes come directly to you. Please leave a rating. Please leave a review. That helps us with our visibility. Like I said, I'm out of here for this week. I've got one more episode coming for you in 2020, and it's a good one with some old friends. So until I hear you again, stay safe, stay sane, take care of yourselves, take care of others. Say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.